The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And tame, and tame again. Crank up the music! Charge your glass! This nation is going to dance all night! The romance of football under the lights, the glorious club name prefixes of the communist era and beyond, the reluctant cult heroes of Championship Manager 0102, how to get your Premier League referee name, confidence and other lazily applied footballing intangibles, and the near parodical Death Star that is FIFA. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 115 of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry and with me first of all is David Walker. How's it going? I'm very good, Adam. How are you? I'm not too bad. Um, following on from our discussion the other day about uh, the football chant, you're just a shit player X. Mm-hmm. Sensational example at the uh, Chelsea-Juventus game on Tuesday night. The Chelsea fans were singing to Juventus goalkeeper Wojciech Chesney, you're just a shit Fabianski. Well, okay. Does this fit the template? I think it sort of does kind of fit the template that I described, as in there is, it doesn't matter about their foot, whether they are similar or not footballing wise, but they they are from the same sort of the Arsenal connection, the, the bad yes. Arsenal reserve keeper, hapless Arsenal keeper. And I mean, it's arguable whether which one's best, I suppose. They've both done pretty well since they've left Arsenal. But yeah, I think that definitely fits the rule that we, we laid down on last week's episode. I think the Arsenal angle was enough. Um, second quick one for you. Listener Mark Cox saw level-headed Sky Sports anchor David Jones in his coffee shop and he tells me he looks like he smells amazing. Okay. I've, I've never got close enough to Dave Jones to, to smell him. I have met him. but um, he looks like a, a good-smelling guy. Very, yeah. very well turned yeah, out. Clean cut, yeah. yeah. Always looking his best. I'm, I'm more inclined to get him on the podcast now. Let's see if we can get him. But I'll tell you who we have got on the podcast with us today. It's editorial titan, broadcasting behemoth, host of the Athletics Tottenham podcast, The View from the Lane, and I'm pretty sure the first football cliches guest to have a controversy section on their Wikipedia page, it's Danny Kelly. Hey, thank Hello. you very, very much indeed. Yeah, um, that controversy's thing on, on the Wikipedia page, I, I don't know how to take that down. It's... Uh, <laughs> Um, and it, it just goes on and on and on. Because actually, I've done many, many worse things than that in my life, Adam. And incidentally, hey, great to uh, to work with you. And of course, I know Dave from our time together over at Talk Sport and all that sort of thing. Um, yeah, um, I've done many, many worse things than that. Of course, but Wikipedia is very, very selective. But thank you for reminding me of it. That's I haven't right. looked at my own Wikipedia entry for 15 years, I guess. Elsewhere on your Wikipedia page, it says you had a cameo role in 2004 hooligan absurdity, The Football Factory. It certainly did. I don't remember this. You can hear my voice. The, the director was a friend of a friend of mine and had done the uh, the draw for the FA Cup, which involves Millwall, I think, uh, drawing Chelsea, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and he'd done it with um, actors. And, of course, they were absolutely useless at it because, <laughs> because, you know, acting, what is it? Let's be honest. We could do the 60 Minutes here on acting. Unless you're an absolute genius at it, I don't know, Tom Hardy in Venom or something like that, um, you, it's just pretending. 
and just saying words, isn't it? So they were no good. So um, <laughs> my friend came back and said, would you and Danny Baker um, do the, the bits? And so I was very happy to do it. And so you, you can hear me um, uh, affecting my BBC London, actually at the time, BBC London, mm. um, here's the third round of the FA Cup draw voice. And, uh, and of course, you, you, because you speak, um, you are entitled to the £60 equity fee but oh, I nice. turned that. I said, "No, I'd write as long as you put me in the titles, which is how you end up um, having a film career." And of course, it's one of only two films, feature films, in which I, I feature. Mm-hmm. Um, the other one, um, being "Divorcing Jack," um, a very exciting yeah. film about um, about the the troubles in Northern Ireland, which uh, f- fell flat on its face because it came out the exact same week as "Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking <laughs> Barrels." Now, again, the background here, and I should warn people when you rush out to get the DVD or download it or from your streaming service, um, is that I appear entirely naked in this film. <laughs> and the reason was I was going out with one of the women who was making the film, uh, mm-hmm. my, my former uh, girlfriend, Amy, who I can almost certainly imagine is not listening to this podcast. Um, and um, they couldn't get anybody to do There was a scene where David Thewlis, who was on the run from, from, the, from the IRA, had to run through a hotel room where a local councillor, um, who had previously been spotted on all the election posters in the background of the film, um, was preparing to make love uh, to his gay lover. And they were doing this by bouncing up and down on space hoppers um, facing each other. And so Thewlis... Uh, so, so they couldn't get anyone to do it because, you know, you only get 60 quid uh, for doing it. And she, she says to me, I was b- popping back and forth. The film's being filmed in, in Belfast, although this seems in Bangor, in an abandoned hotel. Mm, mm. And she says, Dan, would you be prepared to bounce up and down um, on a space opera as the gay lover of the local councillor? I said, hmm, okay. When I'm retired, I didn't realize it was going to be Ireland, where I am now, but I thought it'd be Essex, um, and I'm sat on my front porch as an old man perching something red and delicious on my chest, will my life have seemed better or worse? Better or worse for having appeared naked in a feature film, bouncing up and down the space opera? I said, of course I'll do it. Don't worry about it. But then we got to do the <laughs> come filming day, um, and come filming day, um, and uh, I'm given this pair, because the film was set in the 80s, of very 80s boxer shorts, very funny. They had cartoons on them, and yep. I'm bouncing, I'm bouncing, and I'm doing it. And we're actually um, in a Tarantino tribute, myself and the actor, who was a proper actor, who was playing the local councillor. We're going, I love you, honey bunny. I love you, honey bunny. We, this, we, 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 we had improvised all this without, without any charge to the film company. Hmm. Um, and Thewlis would run in. I call him Thewlis now. It's like I know him really well. David Thewlis would run in. He'd, then he'd, sit, he'd run between us, jump out the window. That was the thing. But he didn't look surprised enough. And the director, David, was um, going, can we do it one more time, please? And David Thewlis just wasn't getting the... I said, I know what to do. Close the door. I then took the box of shorts off. So now I am completely, and I think the phrase is bollock naked, um, on the space hopper. This time when David runs in, he is genuinely surprised to see a rather well-upholstered man with no clothes at all bouncing up and down the space hopper. And um, I do know that later that night, because um, uh, we're all staying in, in, in a hotel together, he'd gone on the phone and told people about this whole adventure. And he had described, what can only be described, uh, be described as my uh, manhood. Um, and he was using the phrase, and there it was just lying on the space hopper. I have to say he was being extremely generous. Um, it, was a very, it was a very cold day in Bangor that day, and I was nervous. So I dare say he was exaggerating there for the sake of artistic effect. So what did you want to talk about? Lovely stuff. Well, I'll add, I'll add film star to that list yeah, as well. Yeah, you this can, is, yeah. 
Danny Kelly is with us for Mesut Harland Dick. Now, for the uninitiated, this is where our star guest picks three things they love about football or just merely fascinates them, and three things they hate or just irrationally irritate them. Now, let's kick off with your first love of football, please, Danny. Yeah, I mean, I've chosen, and it's almost a cliche in itself, but I have reasons for choosing, and that is football under floodlights. Mm. I think, you know, I watch a lot of sports, I love a lot of sports, and, you know, they can be daytime sports, can be nighttime sports, but somehow there's something astonishing about watching football under floodlights. I really miss the, the pylons. The new stadiums don't have the pylons, so they're no longer quite the markers in our industrial towns and cities they once were. But walking up to a stadium when the lights are on, um, and it, it, it's sending a tingle through me now. I remember going to the World Cup qualifier in Rome at the Stadio Olimpico in 1997 between England and Italy. The, oh, yeah. the one where, where Eileen Drury made Ian Wright hit the post in the last minute so there wouldn't be any crowd trouble, yes. as I recall. Because this stadio is in a hole in the ground, obviously Rome's a hilly city, you approach it from above. Mm. And what just the light beaming up into the sky out of this thing. It could have been a spaceship. It could have been a cathedral whose roof had fallen off. It, it was just beautiful. I've always loved the nighttime matches. Now, the background to that, of course, is that um, we often talk about cathedrals. Footballs, are, you know, football grounds are our cathedrals. Yeah. People have, from time immemorial, have worked out that that combination of darkness, lights, and noise is extraordinarily powerful <laughs> on the human psyche, right? Yeah, so, absolutely. So think about it. Church services, darkness, candles, hymns. The church understands the power of these three things. And it goes on. Our football clubs are exactly the same. There's something just unbelievably warming at a, at a kind of sub-molecular level about standing with another group of people um, in these grounds watching the game being played under lights. Any other sport, I can take it or leave it where where and when it's played. Football and night matches, it's almost impossible to keep me away from them if I'm in a town or a city where there is a night game going on. But it's nice to start any Mesut Highland Dicks, Dave, with a slam dunker of a football league. Yeah. Love. Mm. Um, floodlights do look incredible from a distance, um, but I, I'm more interested in, in the kind of the very specific architecture of, of floodlights because, as Danny said, the pylon-style floodlight really is becoming something of a relic. Is I mean... It's a real casualty of the mega stadium era, isn't it, the floodlights? It is, definitely. I was at the first game that Spurs played in their brand spanking new stadium and all, all the amazing light shows and displays that you could see, but not a not a floodlight in traditional sense in sight. It's, it's all those little kind of spotlights that sort of adorn the, the top level of the you know of the roof or whatever even even at the humble vicarage road which they do still have the traditional floodlights but because they weren't strong enough to meet the premier league's guideline for how bright you need to have it for the broadcast they've had to put a load of spotlights on the top of the, the two stands that run alongside the pitch and yeah, it's like it, it looks like something called for, for like a film set or a photography shoot or something. Not mm. the same. Well, we, we we take floodlights for granted to an extent. Well, I mean, the, the power of floodlights we take for granted, Danny. But you look at sort of old sort of football league footage from the nineties, and it's all the pitch is almost yellow. Like it's um it's amazing how uh, just how bright these things are. Yes, I think the the introduction of LED has really helped this because back in the day, you're right, they didn't they, there was not enough power to really and, and you could see. Even teams playing in, the, in the, what's now the Champions League, Nottingham Forest, when they were winning their two European Cups, 
their ground, the lighting was extraordinary in many ways. It, it was the, the floodlights fell in pools, and so they would run through a very bright bit into a slightly darker bit. <laughs> the wonderful thing about that with lights was, of course, that the city ground they used to light the crowd in red, so they looked like they were really? burning. The crowd looked like a burning coal fire around oh. the edges of the pitch. Incredibly intimidating for the opposition. Like Absolutely pop-eater. beautiful. They just put a red light on them, and, they, and so the crowd were, were, appeared to be the embers of a very, very hot fire around the edges of, of the pitch. Of course, I, I grew up in Islington, and so the, the, the business about the pylons was a particular issue because, of course, I used to go to Spurs one week and Arsenal the next. And Arsenal, of course, never had any pylons. For a while, for I mean, for years and years, decades, they were the only club in in England whose floodlights were the, a line across the top of the oh, two really? the two stands. Absolutely, I didn't know that. check I didn't it. Know that. Uh, uh, look at look at old um, footage. You know, it's not that long ago. The Highbury Close. They've never had never had any pylons for whatever reason. And I suspect um, when they were building Highbury, it wasn't quite the enclave of middle class entitlement that it now is. Um, <laughs> I'm sure you both lived there. Um, uh, so, so it can't be the locals complaining about the pylons, but for some reason that ground did not have ever have pylons. So you could always make the comparison. I mean, I don't understand. I mean, I'm not a, light, a lighting engineer, as you as you may know. Yeah. And um, but cricket grounds now, which suddenly have gone daylight matches, they've gone for the highlighting again, haven't they? They mm. do have high highlighting. All of which uh, takes me back to one of the, I hope, one of the most funny things that ever happened on the television. Oh, God. It was after Alf Ramsey. So before you two were born, after Alf Ramsey was sacked as England manager, he had a very brief career as a football co-commentator. Now, obviously, he was very ill-suited to this, Alf, because he wasn't a natural communicator. And he had learned somewhere, because he's from Dagenham, he'd had elocution lessons, Mm, which mm. caused him to affect this very clipped version of the English language. So one day he's with the great Brian Moore at some England game or other, and the floodlights go out. So what you've got on ITV is a blank screen, black screen with Brian desperately filling. And of course he was a genius and he filled very beautifully and he, he spoke about the game. And eventually, of course, he's got to take a break. You know, even I will take a break at some stage during this podcast. And he, tur- he turns or- orally, we can't, we can't see him. He says to Alf Ramsey, so, Alf, um, obviously, great, great uh, experience of the game. Um, how long do you think it'll take for these floodlights to be repaired? Comes the answer, I am not electrician. Just the phrase, I am not electrician, as his elocution lessons. I am not electrician. And that was the end of Brian's break. Well done, Alf. <laughs> Do you know what? It's a long-running frustration of this podcast, the the long shadows of a midday Saturday kickoff. But the romance of floodlights, the inherent romance of floodlights, means I sort of forgive the fact that quite often you get these kind of four-way shadows on a pitch, which which should ruin the football viewing experience. But I actually quite like it. So there you are. I mean, if that's not a rubber stamping of the floodlights credentials, then the player the players look like you just bought a new Christmas tree, don't they? When they have yeah. that frame on oh, that, that yeah. crisscross frame on exactly. which the, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. on which the Christmas tree stands. Absolutely. Before you put it up here, yeah, no, all part of it, all part mm. of it. And I I'm actually really pleased that. My first ever game was a night game. Everyone always describes that experience of going up the steps and then you see the pit, see the pitch, which if you see it in daytime, it's still amazing. But but doing it 
in a night game at Vicarage Road under the lights, it, it just added that extra bit of magic to it. You mentioned the city ground as well, Danny, like that, mm -hmm. in, in, similar to your experience in, in the great city of Rome. I mean, the city ground is an amazingly positioned stadium, isn't it? You've got to go across the River Trent, across the bridge. You've got the cricket ground, Trent Bridge, just over the way as well. And like, it, it is, it's just this great thing in the distance that you can see amongst the houses, but still just sounds giant over its over its surroundings. And it, and it's, it's, I think this is because I've been on a lot of trains recently, but I abhor the demise of the traditional pylon because one of the great <laughs> joys of, of train journeys is if you're just going through a random oh, yeah. place and yeah. you just see you see a little pylon from somewhere and you're just sort of yeah. looking or trying to work oh, yeah. out which ground it is and sort of yeah. can you see it again and it disappears oh, behind the it, trees. It was possible for a Londoner who very, very rarely travelled outside the M25 except for gigs and football matches to navigate the Midlands and particularly Spaghetti Junction um, by football pylons because um, if you got to Birmingham obviously then the traditional thing is that um, you get completely lost you miss the game and when people ask where you are a bit like in the hangover 2 they say oh no Birmingham has him now um, but <laughs> but there was a set of football pylons and they were the pylons of the old Bescott ground at Warsaw ah. and if you kept them to your right I found you could that meant you were going north keep the Bescott to your right and you could navigate pretty safely around the otherwise intractable problem of Birmingham. So the, 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 the practicality of them is gone as well. Finally, a purpose for Walsall Football Club. That's that's interesting. <laughs> um, do you know, floodlights, though, Danny, have a. There, there are much more mundane aspects to this. Um, I'm pointed in the direction of a recent um, floodlight-related concern at QPR, when some fans were questioning about whether their floodlights were bright enough. Uh -huh. So much so that the club had to release a statement about it. And they said the pitch is split into 88 areas on a grid system. The average lux value across these areas must be 800. The average lux value at Kai and Prince Foundation Stadium had fallen to 708. Uh -huh. Following the upgrade, the average lux value is now 1,454. Over-delivering! And as Rob Roberts Facey tweeted, highest average floodlight lux value in the championship, you'll never sing that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Lux values at the wheel now. Don't worry about that. That's the real currency of football, isn't it? Yeah. My final point on floodlights, though, Danny, is um, when did Malaysian gambling syndicates get bored of cutting the wires at Premier League football? Very now? sad. I mean, I, I mean, you know, I, I'm all for the new, and I'm all. I, I don't really hanker necessarily for every aspect of football as it was. Some of them um, are still quite close to my heart. But when Malaysian gambling syndicates decide they no longer wanted to cut the wires at Brentford, um, unless, of course, the problem is, because I seem to recall it was often Brentford was involved. Um, of course, they're very lazy Malaysian gambling syndicates. They land at Heathrow, the nearest ground is Brentford. Let's do it there. Um, <laughs> That's it. Yeah, my, guess, my guess is they're still at Griffin Park cutting the wires, but they haven't realised <laughs> that the club has moved. That would be my, my outside guess of what's happening with the wire cutters wielding Malaysian gambling syndicates and always syndicates. No gangs, no carders. They're always yeah. syndicates, aren't always they? Always syndicates. As if there's, you know, like a proper arrangement. Yeah. You know, like oh, really, yeah. really, really well thought out. Yeah. But, um, when the uh, when the floodlights do finally come back on after a failure, Dave, what is the commentator obliged to say? Something flippant? Someone's forgot to put 50p in the meter. 50p! Yes. <laughs> Fascinating! <laughs> 50p was the denomination that I went for. Danny, any advance on 50p? Oh, blimey. By the time, by the time I'd... Uh, I grew up in a world, don't forget, before the 50p coin was invented. Oh, I did one day, yeah. So, yeah, sixpences were the things then. They were a little tiny... I mean, the, five, the, the 50 pence piece was a much better 
clunk when you put it into a gas meter, wasn't it? It really, and of course, then is because of course you'd welded that piece of wire to it to get it back out again. Once you'd got the requisite amount of gas, you could get it back out very satisfyingly as well because it was heavy. I enjoyed that. Yeah. Well, we've got a nice breezy one for your second football league. Yeah. Love. Tell us about this. Um, my second lover is, is football under communism. Now, okay. f- first of all, let me, let me make it plain <laughs> that the communist world, uh, particularly in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Stalinist Empire, was uh, A, very bad thing. Capital A, capital V, capital B, capital T. However, um, my fascination with the sport behind Iron Curtain is very real. Um, as a young man, when these teams would occasionally emerge, often Red Star Belgrade or one of the Soviet teams would arrive fully formed in the early stages of the old European Cup or the UEFA Cup, and they played brilliant technical football. The reasons for which we don't need to go into coaching is essentially an East European activity that we've re-imported back into the West from the 1940s and 50s, although it was brought there by British people. Of course, there's a, there's a brilliant book about it, which I, I can't remember the name of now, about how coaching went from Britain to Hungary, comes back from Hungary to Ajax through Kosciusz, and then from Ajax to Barcelona. And what you have now, to, uh, both possession football and the pressing, has all come out of this. Um, but these teams were brilliant. Uh, of course, the best players all tend to play for two or three clubs because of the way their societies were organised. And I just got my head into this whole business of football under communism and the names of the teams locomotive mm. and dynamo um they 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 smacked of a heavy industrial past that was already um in the mists of time in britain when i was growing up i got some personal joy from all this um in the summer of live aid so what's that mid 80s um yeah. i'd fallen in love there's no other word for it um with a girl she was english uh, English-Irish, who taught Germ- uh, taught English in the university in Dresden. Um, the only people who, who were allowed to learn English, really, by the state, were people who were going to become spies. And so she was teaching English to the spies. It's a long story and very complicated. So I go over to East Germany in the summer to see her. That, that itself, very difficult to go behind the Iron Curtain as an ordinary civilian. But, mm. but she, because she had certain... Paul, because of her, her job in the university, that worked. And I said, we were in Dresden, and I said, I'd really love to go and see Dynamo Dresden's ground. There's floodlights coming here. You see, this is why this is an award-winning podcast. I'm joining it all up for you here. And it's the middle of summer, and I go and find their ground, because I knew the name Dynamo Dresden, obviously. And we get there. Two things. One, the place is locked up. And two, the floodlights are amazing. They've got modern floodlights. They are outside the ground completely, they are shaped like very modernist lamps might be, like you'd, you'd have on your on a, on a side table in a, in a in a in a sort of James Bond style lair. And the four of them lean into the ground like four giraffes, four very modernist giraffes. So that was good. But then I found the old geezer um, and said, "Would you? Would can I look in this ground?" And he got a key, opened up a massive rust, rusty padlock. Points to his watch, said, I'll be back in two hours, and let me wander around Dynamo Dresden Stadium. Did you experience. run on the pitch, Danny? Oh, of course I was stadium. on the I wandered yeah. around. I wandered around the pitch. Um, and Did you pretend to score a goal? No. Um, as, I play, <laughs> as you know, David, from knowing me from the past, I played in defence. Um, the idea of scoring a goal um, is so, ana- so distant from my actual footballing experience. Um, I, I, might have, I might have stood on the edge of the box appealing for offside. That'd be about, about the size of it. And, and then realise, of course, it's Hackney Marshes and there is no linesman. Well, who am I appealing to for this uh, legendary offside? A last thing about this is that 
the, the vestige of this is that whenever the draw for the first stages of the Europa League comes on, and I'm doing broadcasting, I'll say, oh, I wonder who's going to get Lokomotiv Zivsniag. Now, there is no mm. Lokomotiv Zivsniag. They're a team I've made up. But such is our lack of knowledge of these teams from Eastern Europe that everyone just, just goes, okay, fine, well, we'll watch out for Lokomotiv Zivsniag. Sadly, mm. of course, our Spurs have descended to the Conference League. I did wake up one morning thinking, actually, they might draw a team called Lokomotiv Zivsniag. They might be real. Funnily enough, um, as you say that, among the kind of many things about communist era football that we kind of still kind of fetishize a little bit as you say are the kind of prefixes for the team names now now i want to get a feel for this dave first of all are you a cska torpedo locomotive spartak or dynamo man i am a a locomotive man because i i was lucky enough to go out to russia quite a few times before and during the 2018 world cup and i, I visited both spartak and locomotive and both the things that are brilliant about those stadiums and about other stadiums of teams similar to that are they have you know these very literal sort of references to their history yeah. and to their name so outside of spartak stadium there is an enormous statue of a sort of spartan warrior it right. is massive it's sort of sort of thing you'd see in sort of ancient greece or in a in an epic film like that it's huge oh, but yeah. but i preferred uh, locomotive stadium which i went to i went to a europa league game in for locomotive moscow against uh, sheriff tiraspol was wagner love playing uh no he wasn't no but there were there were at least two brazilian players on the pitch i'm sure um but outside locomotives ground is a massive train nice mm. it's just a huge green and want. red train uh locomotive obviously to do with the name and it's, and it's like god love him but outside watford's ground there's a graham taylor sitting on the bench yeah <laughs> <laughs> it's just not it's just not the same is it yeah we, we just don't treat them as the same kind of instruments but um but you know all these all these moscows mm -hmm. um Got me digging, Danny. There are there are a lot more defunct or alive Moscow football teams than people realise. Do you know there was an FC Moscow, mm -hmm. which sounds massively unadventurous. Come on, guys, you can do better than that. Yeah, they existed for six years in the mid two thousands. They were owned by the city of Moscow. So they were there was it was kind of a brave attempt to really stamp stamp their uh, their authority on uh, on the Moscow football scene. There was a VVS Moscow. They were the Air Force football team. Wow. They lasted for about seven years until their entire squad died in a plane crash in 1950. Oh, that is the, 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 what a way to go. But, you know, yeah, you might want to take the smile out of your voice when you're describing an actual human tragedy, you know. We'll try. <laughs> but perhaps my favourite one, Dave. Mm. Everyone, of course, knows Rotor Volgograd. Yeah. But they used to be called Tractor Stalingrad which I think is almost too Soviet, almost to the point of slight parody. Yeah, yeah, it is. But, I mean, Rotor Volgograd, they're the team that Schmeichel scored against... Oh. The, wow, that League. that yeah. is tremendous out pullage. Wherever you got that from, really good. Mm. That's that's what they're, that's what they're known for. But of course, um, these sorts of names they live on, and they're destined to live on. Danny in sort of Zone Four Power League divisions. Uh, my local one up at North Cheam, there's a Spartak Tesco. Very good. Despite the fact we play next to a Sainsbury's. Ah, oh, well, um, you know, keeping it real, I suppose is the phrase there. But I mean, of course, I I, I don't want these these names to disappear because they are so part of my age isn't it they're so part of my upbringing these teams coming out of the mists of communism now of course if you're, as soon as you're a 12 year old and any good at football in eastern europe you're you're, you're pitching up in, in italian clubs and all the rest of it but then when they were all kept kept back and forced to play for 
Red Star or or who Gortnik or whoever it was. And of course, you know, then the national teams would appear out of nowhere. The Soviets had a brilliant national team at one stage. Poland were a better team than England for the whole of the 70s uh, and so on. The fall of communism, I do not regret one iota. The fall of communist football is a very a very sad thing in me in my mind. We are we asked our listeners about their favorite football club name prefixes because it's, it's it's a little fascinating strand of football language dave um first of all the enduring debate athletic atletico or even atletico because i once played for a hackney marshes sunday league called atletico angels and every time i mentioned it people said well you can't have that you can't have both it turns out you can yeah because in 2018 atletico paraniense in brazil changed their name to club atletico paraniense so it's, 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 it's fine now. This is a favourite of the European football pedants <laughs> slash ultras who go, you know, people be going, oh, oh it's at- Atletico. Oh, actually, it's Atletic. It's Atletico. It's, it's Athletic Bilbao. <laughs> uh, club Athletic. athletic club. Yeah, athletic don't call club. them Bilbao. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, we absolutely. know what you mean. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but Danny, it gets much more subtle than this. I mean, a lot of the prefixes are very bombastic words, as we've seen with the, with the Soviet clubs. But Simon Trainer says, my favourite is when an FC is the standard part of a club's name, always at the beginning, FC Flora, FC Hacker, etc. It's very world soccer. And it, and I quite like it. It's a lovely little touch because, for example, what happened to FC Porto? They sounded much scarier than simply Porto, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, we haven't gone in for... We, we, we all, all, most of ours are football clubs. We've very rarely incorporated... Um, the football club nomenclature into the actual name. The exception, and they've stopped doing it now, Bournemouth were, or still are, AFC Bournemouth. Yeah, they're clinging on to it. Always top of the, always top of the table at the start of the yeah. season. Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's to, in Porto's case, they are football club Porto, because is it to do with the fact that these clubs are all multi-sports often, particularly in Iberia? Often, And yeah. you're, you're d- d- distinguishing yourself basketball, from the basketball handball. team. and it's all handball, basketball. Handball, 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 yeah. Water polo. Yeah, yes. absolutely. <laughs> water polo, that's, that's Croatia only. It may yeah. be that. <laughs> and then, of course, you get in Germany, um, where, because it is a very confusing language, isn't it? Um, they get VFB. You get the VFB teams, don't you? Like Stuttgart mm. and people like that. Oh, it's very awkward in in German. I mean, most awkwardly of all, as Alex Partridge um, points out, German clubs sticking the number one in front of their names. One FC Köln, for example. Uh, He said, well, you must be good then. Um, Of course, the one denotes, Danny, the fact that they're the first club from that city. But still, I don't like it. It's unwieldy. Well, I mean, uh, it would be wrong for me, Adam, to come here and and doubt what you've just said. But but often, of course, the numbers in the German teams refer to the year they were founded. So so Schalke 04, I won't attempt the the German... Eins, zwei, drei, vier. Uh, Schalke, zero, whatever, whatever it is. Null, vier. Uh, thank you. Thank you, null, vier. It's often, it's often um, about the date of when the clubs were founded. I mean, I like that a lot. I mean, yeah. you know, like when you go past a shop, um, uh, Walker and Brothers or Walker and Son, and it says established 1927. I like that a lot. And I think football teams... Yeah, so do I. Should, yeah. So do I. And also, also, it would cause a great deal of anxiety for those clubs that are Phoenix clubs with which date they go with. I'm looking at you, Wimbledon. That was a mere prefix to your third love of football, Danny. Well, look, the first part of it is is not um, very original, I don't think, because football manager, or as it used to be, championship manager, if you don't play the joystick games, it is, of course, a, a global obsession. And I've been into it, I can't say through its entire history, 
And I'll tell you how I got into it in a second. But I love Championship Manager. And I say, I know it's now called Football Manager, but I don't play Football Manager. I play the classic version of Championship Manager 2001, the one with the red cover. Um, mm, 0102. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. That one. I got into it. My brother, who is a... Uh, a football journalist as well. He's a football TV producer these days. Um, came to live with me in my house in Islington. And he said, I want to teach you how to play. You'll love this game, Dan. I didn't. I had no interest in computer games. All my time was spent listening to music. Um, he said, no, I promise you. And I remember, he's 10 years younger than me, so it's a bit odd as well that he was the teacher, sat, sitting for hours in front of the TV, the computer screen, while he taught me how to play the game. Okay, that was fine. And I did get into it. He was living at the top of the house at this stage. Uh, it's a four-story house um, with a spiral staircase down the middle of it. And we were too mean to buy a second copy of the game, which at that time you needed to load up. You had to have the disc in the computer every time. So text message, this is how lazy middle-aged men are. Text message, can I have, please, the championship manager disc? And we had fashioned out of a safety pin and a piece of string, a kind of fishing hook, and it used to come down the middle of the spiral staircase. And you just, Thank you very much. And then you put it into play the game. Um, I, I, I love it. I absolutely love it. So I've, I've continued to play it ever since. Um, and I go I go whole, I mean, possibly two or three years when I just won't play Championship Manager because it's so addictive, isn't it? We all know that. And then suddenly I'll see the disc. Oh, go on then. Slap it into the computer and play the game. I never play as Arsenal for obvious reasons. I never play as yep. Manchester United because I don't, you know, can't be bothered with that. And, and uh, or, you know, you, you, I know, I know the players off by heart. I absolutely know, you know, mm-hmm. Taribo West is available on a free transfer. You have yep, to yep. get Taribo West. Mike Duff. Mike Duff. And more about that in a minute as well. <laughs> and um, uh, and I, I buy Maxim Sigalko to play up front, the Belarusian forward. Sure. R.I.P. He, he, is he dead now, the, the great he man? He is, yeah. Oh, yeah. Is that right? Oh, I wish, mm. I'd, oh, that's a shame. I wish I'd, I'd known that because I would have done a massive tribute to Maxim Sigalko because he's helped me out many, many times in championship I management. never encountered Maxim Sigalko oh, in my game. Oh, uh, you get him for about 700 grand um, before he's played the first game of the season and I've got him up to 60 goals, Adam, in, in various seasons. Is that right? You can't get a work permit for him in English, so you have to play as Anderlecht or, or uh, you know, any... Oh, obviously. OK. You- Funnily enough, 0102, I, I, I'm pretty sure, Danny, is pretty much the point at which many people hopped off the Championship Manager, Football Manager bandwagon. Because, in my humble opinion... Speaking as a man who just simply doesn't have the time to play football manager anymore, much as I probably would like to, 0102 has the kind of perfect balance of speed and depth, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, yeah. it goes quickly enough, but there's enough there to work with so you don't get bored. Exactly. And when it starts to introduce the new um, uh, elements to it, and I like the actual replays of goals, press conferences where you have to talk to journalists. I mean, I wouldn't do that in real life, never mind in a game I'm trying to play while, while you know, sucking down something uh, alcoholic. It's just, no, 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 none, none of that at all. Um, I'm glad you mentioned Mike Duff. Um, I was interviewing um, Mike Duff on the radio a while back and when he was still playing for Burnley, I suspect it was, of course. And, of course, he's had 50 caps for Northern Ireland and all the rest of it. I said, Mike, thank you very much for all of that. He was telling us about the match he's going to play at the weekend. So, Mike, now down to the real thing. Um, Mike, it's fair to say that you've had a pretty good career, but nothing like what you have if you're bought at the right time on Championship Manager. Do you know he hated it? He absolutely had obviously heard this before. I've had a very yeah, good of career. Of course you have. Absolutely. 50 caps in your country, playing in the Premier League. That is brilliant. But what about when you play... Oh, man, the silence at the other end of the phone. He was not having it whatsoever. I'm really surprised by yeah. that. Oh, no. 
I mean, he must be an interesting case, actually, Dave, because, of course, there are this kind of these well-worn names that we constantly hear about as cult heroes from the Championship Manager yeah. series. Cherno Samba. Sean Salakovic. Yeah. Kennedy Bakrich. Absolutely. Yeah. Stefan Ishizaki. Yeah. But, um, but Dave, there must be a kind of certain point you get to as, as a, in stature as a footballer where it starts to stop become, where it stops being a novelty and starts to become an irritation. Maybe Mike Duff is right at that point because, of course, he went on to bigger things after he appeared That's in that game. That's the thing, yeah, because he did have a, a, a legitimate career as you said Danny that he mm. could that he could quite rightly be proud sure. of whereas somebody like Cherno Samba he didn't really ever break through and have a have a, a career that he perhaps thought that he may have as good as the one he may have thought he could have been able to have when he was a 15 year old at Millwall <coughs> and he's sort of I've seen him he's done press I think he's done a book and he's kind of you know I think he's sort of very much embraced that cult status that he has and there's probably a few others like that I, I bet as you say there's there's a there's a, there's a whole sort of squad's worth of players that you know you just need can go out and hoover up at the start of the games and I bet they're all they're all be interesting to see yeah what the dip you know how what the split is between people enjoying it or being absolutely sick of it and abandoning all requests to talk about it well, let, let, let me if I may Adam let me just uh, say one of those players you have to pick up at the very start of course is Taribo West we know Taribo who came and played in this country played for Derby didn't mm. he and he had the little yep. strange top knot of hair on top of his head and all the rest of it but I know that other people rather more famous than us I know it's hard to imagine in my case but rather more famous than us uh, were playing Championship Manager 0102 because I tweeted out one day um, I'd been told Toribo West had now living in, in Italy um, where he finished his career and started his own church said to one of the kids on the radio show um, can somebody pick the phone up see if we can get Toribo West on it'd be absolutely brilliant we're talking about football we're talking about his new church and we're talking about his status as a Championship Manager legend um, and Sure enough, it was arranged for that evening, and I tweeted it out. I said, tonight, Taribo West, those of you who know Championship Manager will know, blah, blah, blah. This was retweeted with, well, actually quote tweeted by no less than Gareth Bale. Now, I, <laughs> I don't follow Gareth, or he certainly doesn't follow me, but he seemed to me, he said, Gareth Bale, attention, attention, tonight on Talk Sport with Danny Kelly, Taribo West, Championship, uh, championship Manager legend. So now I imagine... Millions of people were listening to my normally enormously um, popular show, but millions extra were listening. And we, yeah. the line comes up. Good afternoon, good, e- good evening, Taribo. Hello, Danny. How are you? Comes this a Nigerian accented voice at the far end. Um, we start talking. We start talking. And I suppose about four minutes into the interview, I realised that this is not actually Taribo West. Mm. It is somebody pretending to be Taribo oh. West. And what's going through my head is now. How do I get this fella off without making an absolute clown of myself? How do I get him off without making an absolute clown of him? Um, and how do I get him off without upsetting Gareth Bale from a distance, you know? Um, <laughs> and so in the end, in the end, I just said, look, I've got to be honest, man. You, you don't sound like Tari- Your answers to your question suggest to me that either you're not Taribo West or you're probably not taking your medication. And so we moved him on. Um, you should have got. Him, you should have given him a little quiz. That's a shame. Yeah, but, that's what I would have done. Oh, but, that, but that's why you're pulling down the big bucks, Adam. And I'm sitting there as a mm, guest right. on your show. That's uh, yeah. right. Well, do you know what? I'm 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 amazed actually. Well, I'm pleasantly surprised that we've got through a segment on Championship Manager without you telling some sort of horrendous story about you wearing a suit for a cup final, which is the sort of thing I despise about Championship Manager discourse. But I do like I do like your story, your multi-story story about transferring the disc up and down the stairs. Yeah. That alone is worth this segment. So thank you, thank you for sharing that. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Welcome back to Meza Holodix. We're with Danny Kelly today. So far, we've covered the joy of floodlights, the prefixes of communist era football teams, and championship manager 0102. Right now, we're down to the serious business, Danny. Tell us about your first hatred of football. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a great fan of the word hatred, Adam, but I, I, that's the one you right. use because I save my hatred for really important things. But I don't like, I really don't like, for instance, and these are the first two of these are tiny little things. And I, I understand that's the way this podcast works. You pick out. Yes. I don't like the fact you can recognise the referees. Recognisable referees are a pet hate. They're my room 101, if you like, um, of a much inferior version of this show. It started, I guess, oh, long ago, people like, like um, what's he called? Roger Millwood. It struck, yeah. struck me that the referees were started. We started in, in, in the old days. You just got the programme, and it's uh, referee blogs from Hertfordshire. You just checked that he wasn't uh, his address didn't match up the team you were playing against, and then you never thought about him again. He was an anonymous android in a black kit. Then yeah. comes Mil- Millwood. Then comes Uriah Rennie, and it's clear that a there's a profession here, so you want to get in and you want to keep the gig, and b that these people may well have. Um, little gigs outside of football, opening supermarkets, um, turning up. And nowadays, they'd be doing those birthday greetings things that Nigel Farage does now, wouldn't they? They're topping up their income. But to do that, you have to become a little bit famous. It's a good point. Is Mike Dean on Cameo? We do need uh, to I check bet that he is. Out. You can be <laughs> sh- absolutely sure. And, you know, I give your birthday Classes. the red card and all that, yeah, all that yeah, sort yeah. of stuff. Yeah. It's a red card from me, That's mate. That's you'd never be able to escape the brand. You would have to do something oh, yeah. refereeing related you, you, every you'd, time you'd have you to pull the birthday card out of your side pocket, Oof. wouldn't you, and hold yeah. it up. Oh, I don't know why she's chosen to marry you, mate. <laughs> I'm afraid it's a red card. <laughs> and so I... But then worse than that, as the referees became a bit more famous and the, they were being more talked about on television... I also thought about how it's affecting the actual game because you can tell one of the reasons that the bigger teams, my own included, get all the decisions, and I'm sure a Watford fan will back me up here, is that the the turnover of players at the clubs halfway down and down to the bottom half of the Premier League, for instance, is much greater than the turnover of players at the top. You have a successful team, you tend to build on it. Also, these people are superstars, so you can see the referees starting to get on the act. Um, and, you know, when they book Wayne Rooney, it's all, get away from me, Wayne. They know these people personally. Um, and I really thought this is not right, particularly if you support Watford, and they might not have the same players for three weeks running. They just change the whole staff over, don't they? Um, and what I thought was, how can we make these people more anonymous? Now, first of all, I would personally, we're heading through a time, surely electronic, where you don't need a referee. You'll do it from a truck. So you won't have to see their <clears throat> preening mugs on the television. And so first of all, I thought, okay, make them wear some kind of mask so we can't tell who they are. 
so that they don't become celebrities, open supermarkets, <laughs> and need to keep the gig and topping up their industry, all that stuff. <laughs> like stormtroopers. Okay, no, no. So they could wear a Daft Punk style headpiece. That yeah. would be just perfect. Then I thought, haha, but Danny, but Danny, you fool. Um, the people still start saying, oh, that running style, that looks like it might be one of the Olivers, you know. Um, yeah. Daddy Oliver or you know Baby Oliver is now refereeing the league. Um, and I thought, so now we're going to have to put some kind of cloak or cape or um, I suppose what's the, what's the some kind of very large garments over them as well. So now they're starting to look a bit like Darth Vader. Yeah, right. They're looking <laughs> a bit like Darth Vader. But I wouldn't obviously you wouldn't put them in all black anymore because Darth Vader is too frightening. So you've got a highly coloured tabard right down to your ankle so you can't tell by the body shape who it is and the daft punk helmet so you can't tell red lightsaber yellow lightsaber uh, uh, and, good yeah. uh, and i want to anonymize the referees i think that's where i'm going with this so far right well interesting i mean this idea that um of refereeing fame dave i feel like it has two strands you have the limelight seeking referees who the sorts of which I believe Danny's railing against here, the, the ones that go a little bit above their station. Okay, that's that's well established. We, your, we, your poles, your yeah, deans. We kind of generally agree. We don't, yeah, we don't want this to happen. They, we don't want them to transcend their their job. But the second strand of this is, it's not the referee's fault. It's, it's, it's us over-consuming football to the point where referees and their names and their faces and, and in uh, at some point in football history, their, their places of birth become embedded in our brains and i'm fascinated by this because we we know too much about referees just inherently than we mm. ought to and i want to demonstrate this with a something of a challenge for you both well quickly um, before you do just on that point it, it brings to mind something that happened to me at the weekend i was watching watching liverpool against arsenal and i was i was annoyed that i couldn't work out who the referee was yeah that's it uh, it, so and who it, was it? Turn, turned out it was paul tierney but right. I was looking at it and I was going, is that, is that Mike? It's not Michael Oliver. Is that Atwell? Is it Atwell? Mike Could be Atwell, Atwell there. Yeah, and, I, and I just couldn't work it out. But it's been, it, you know, I was, wasn't watching the game because I was trying to think of who this bloody referee was. Yeah, there you go. I mean, well, that's, we've got to the point where it's tantalising where you're not sure who the referee is. But for future reference, Paul Tini is the one with the slightly hairier arms than the others. Um, <laughs> okay. Worth, point, <laughs> worth noting. Okay, so um, to demonstrate... Uh, the fact that we soak in much more about referees' names than we ever thought. I offer you a 30-second challenge. Now, Dave, you're going to go first with this one. So, okay. Danny, I'm going to have to ask you to take your headphones off yes. and step into your isolation booth, please. I'm, li I'm literally doing that now. Weird, isn't it? Good, good. Okay, Dave's going to go first then. Dave, I, all I want you to do, and you have 30 seconds to do it, I want you to name as many Premier League-era referees as you like. So that's 1992 to 2021. Go. Uh, Paul Durkin, Uriah Rennie, David Ellery, Howard Webb, Graham Pohl, Mike Dean, Paul Tierney, Stuart Atwell, uh, uh, Kevin Friend. Um, uh, now I've just got to the point where I'm just thinking of Pierre Luigi Colina, and, it doesn't, and he's not one, and I can't get him out of my head. Uh, uh, that was quite a lot. I reckon double it was. figures. I think you've got about ten. I didn't really devise a way of recording any of these because you said them too quickly. I wasn't ready for it. So let's say ten. Let's say ten, shall we? Sorry, this is like the this is like the football cliches quiz all over again, isn't it? Let's try let's try it with Danny. Danny, what um, are you doing there? Welcome back, <laughs> Danny. Dave has set the bar oh. in this challenge with ten. What I want you to do is name as many Premier League era referees 
That's 1992 to 2021 as you can. In 30 seconds, your time begins now. I spent my whole time trying to forget their names. Um, Michael Oliver, Paul... I'm not going to get 10. Paul Durkin, Uriah Rennie, um, Howard Webb, um, all the ones that are currently doing it with hairy arms and without. Um, the only one I really have to remember is Mike Riley because he is in charge of them, isn't he? Mike Riley, and he, of course, yeah. is the uh, archetype of these Five kind of ones. Um, and he was the one who didn't see the ball four feet over the line at Old Trafford that cost the Spurs uh, they get their place in Europe. Time's that year. up, I'm afraid, yeah. Danny. Good. Time's up. Only you, only you would spend half the time of a challenge to name a list of names telling me about one of the names. Yeah. That is, you came up with five. Yeah. We'll work out how many Dave got later, but I'm pretty sure it was ten. Yeah. So good was he at listing names. Yeah, um, yeah you could have had Paul Orcock. You could have had uh, okay, Gerald Ashby. Yeah. No, you could have had that. Peter Banks. Orcock was the one no. that was offered out by, by DeCanio. DeCanio, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Graham Barber. Barber. Martin yeah. Bodnam. No, it wouldn't have got bottom. Um, bloke called Vic Callow, which doesn't sound like a referee's name mm. at all. No. Andy Durso, I think maybe one of you got. But yeah. Durso, Durso um, was the one that was chased by the Manchester United baying pack led by Roy Keane, wasn't exactly. he? Exactly. Yeah. yeah, he became very much the poster boy okay. for the respect campaign yeah. or the early rumbling. And, and Olympic backward running champion as well, which was quite, a, quite yes. a feat, you know. Very important skill for referees, of course. But I'm, I'm fascinated by refereeing names because I think, Danny, like Soccer Saturday reporters, referees' names are a very precise thing. They're not particularly spectacular, but I feel like you could spot one a mile off. Our listeners have suggested some made-up referees' oh, names for us. Joe says, my immediate thought is Kevin Dixon. That's spelled D-I-C-K-S-O-N. Specifically, yeah. absolutely no reason why just feels right. Kevin Dixon, does that sound referee to you? Yes, indeed, yeah. Um, provided, yep, provided, and uh, in my mind, they all come from the town of Tring. Now, I don't even know where Tring is. So forgive me, <laughs> forgive me, Tringtonians. I don't know. Hertfordshire. Oh, thank you very much. Yes, refereeing hotbed of Hertfordshire. One of the yeah. one of the one of them must at some stage have come from Tring because it is stuck in my head um, as a, a place where referees come from. The problem is now, since I say, as in my attempts to anonymise them, I do not read anything about them. I don't want to know where they're from. Um, Graham Pohl was from ah, Tring. He was nicknamed the Thing from there Tring. You go. No, he wasn't. Who <laughs> says by who? <laughs> well, fascinating that you ask. Fascinating that you ask. Because one athletic writer got in contact and said he was desperate to find out where this originated. And he's, he proposed that Pohl himself dubbed himself ah. the Thing from Tring in an interview. God's sake. Uh, no evidence of this and uh, it goes back as far as about the turn of the millennium yeah but the thing from Tring which which it's it's just too overblown a, a nickname for a referee uh, you know let alone a nickname for a referee at all um, Dave Neil McColl says and the referee today is David Prattley that sounds maybe League One yep and they've yeah. Yeah. He would passes, give a, he that would, passes the test and yep. he's yeah. managed to work the, the, the pre-mixed insult of Pratt into the name already hasn't he yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think that's quite important yeah. so there's a kind of inference of haplessness about yeah. it which is Prattly you Pratt yeah, yeah. yeah. except, except for Dermot take. Gallagher of course they've, the vast majority of them have got incredibly incredibly Anglo-Saxon yeah. names aren't they yeah. it doesn't seem yeah. like the waves of immigration Jewish Irish Caribbean they're not they're not making it into the refereeing ranks but maybe Trin is a particularly Anglo-Saxon town. I don't know. These, these names are just designed to fly under the radar. I, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of these were kind of, um, 
you know, show names. Yeah. You know, for, <laughs> stage and their real names. life names were, were, were much more adventurous. But they just, they, it's the opposite of a stage name, isn't it, Dave? Like, you want to like, look like, less glamorous. Like, you know, like when people say that if Prince Charles becomes king, you'll have to change his name. He'll actually be called King George or something. <laughs> it's exactly like that. You get um, given your referee name. Once you, were, when, once you were coronated as a Premier League by mm. PGM, by Mike Dean himself, yeah. you are issued with your standard issue referee name. I mean, in in some rare occasions, some referees' names do sound stagey enough. Uh, Danny, Chris Adams writes and says, Barry Knight is the quintessential ref's name. Incidentally, is that I met, Yeah, Chris Adams says he met his son while interrailing in Slovenia in 2008 and he was astonished we even knew who his dad was. Well, you probably would be, wouldn't you? What, what a weird thing to be picked up on while interrailing. Your dad's, uh, your dad's Barry Knight. Well, that's, that's fantastic. As society has changed and footballers' names changed. Very few of them these days are called Steve and Ron. When I was growing up, 94% of all footballers were called Steve or Ron. Um, and people make up these new names. And as yet, it hasn't... Uriah, or Uriah Rennie, otherwise they're all still Johns and Phillips and Davids. When will you get the announcement? And, uh, well, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to White Hart Lane, the world-famous home of the Spurs. And today's referee for the game against Lokomotiv Zivzniag is Clytemnestra Cooper. When are we going to get that? Where are the middle-class names coming through in refereeing? Wait, Come on, Tring. It's all about the continent. It's all about the continent. On the continent, we've got Ruddy Buckets. We've got Johnny Casanova. Oh. Um, but there's some, yeah, Clement Turpin, another very good referee's <laughs> name. But back, it, back on these shores, yeah. Dave, I really like this from George Sims. He says, The Venn diagram between Premier League-era refs' names and stereotypical Bournemouth player names is nearly a circle. I can imagine Andrew Sermon, Charlie Daniels and David Brooks officiating a Monday evening at Molyneux, just as much as I can see a John Moss, Lee Mason and Michael Oliver bossing a midfield at Dean Court. Absolutely Great works. Spot. Yeah, really good. And uh, and there is something in the sort of second name, you know, two, having two first names, right? Mm. Ref, a lot of referees have two two first names yeah. and not many, not many syllables. Michael Oliver, well, yeah. We're getting closer, perhaps, to the essence of a Premier League referee's name, Danny. Uh, but fortunately, Joe McNaughton has furnished us with a Premier League referee name generator. Ah. You can go first with this one. What I need is the first name of your mum or dad's brother. Pick any of they're, them, if you uh, like. You pick one. Well, considering they're Whichever from families of first. respectively 10 and 11, um, and mm. most of them, both men and women, are called Michael. Oh, OK. <laughs> Michael it <laughs> yeah. is, then. And the surname of your first primary school teacher? Victory. Michael Victory. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I'm not sure. Mike Dean would have to issue you a new name, I'm afraid, Mike if you turned Victory. up yeah. at this, the referee's school with I, that I, name. I don't suppose Victory. Mr. Victory is still alive. It's a shame. Mike. Okay. Mike. Uh, okay. So Mike Victory yeah. is. He can be our. He can be our referee. Who's our? Who's our first linesman, please, Dave? Uh, so say say me the give me the formula again. It's the first name of your mum or dad's brother. Um, and the surname of your first primary school teacher. My mum. Neither my mum or dad have brothers. Oh, that's yeah. annoying. My dad's name is is Richard. Yeah. It was Richard. Um, and my it would be Richard Slade. Richard Slade. Yeah. Richard Slade. We, do, we would, are not. We are ha- not straying very far from the Anglo-Saxon names here, are we? It's very it's true. Ang- Richard. Richard Slade would struggle to contain a fourteen-man brawl on Football League Extra. Yeah. What about yeah. yours? Uh, mine is Jonathan Curd. Yeah, who's in, yeah. That's, that's more of a linesman-y name, yeah. Jonathan Curd. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ably assisted by, line, by by assistants Richard Slade and Jonathan Curd. Yeah, is over on the far side, Jonathan Andrew Dave, referee Andrew David. Yeah, R- R- Richard mm. Slade would have a ghost-written column in the mail, wouldn't he? Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Slade, Dick Slade. <laughs> 
Dick Slade, more of a you know, 1950s gumshoe, Danny. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Dickie Slade could be Soccer Saturday reporter as well. Yes. You? You're, yeah, you're, you're, yeah. you're ben, making the Sam Spade, Dick Slade uh, connection there as well, subconsciously. Very good. Very good indeed. Uh, Mike Bailey has taken a scientific approach to this, Danny. Mm-hmm. He says, based on the frequency of Christian and surnames in, this, in the Wikipedia article that lists all the Premier League referees of all time, Great. The most composite Premier League era referee names are Peter Jones, Peter Taylor, and Peter Madley. So Peter's. So if you're a Peter, yeah, you're really there, dude. You're inherently referee. Yeah, and it is a referee's. I mean, again, the kids at school called Peter were the sort of middle of the road, not too bright, not too stupid, not too funny, but not a nuisance to be around. They were the Peters, weren't they? Everyone, you're always, everyone's got one mate called Pete, haven't you? If you go to the pub in a group of more than four men and one of them's not called Pete or Andy, to be fair, then you are struggling, aren't you? I do have a, a good friend called yeah, Pete. Yeah, of course yeah. you do. There you go. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. You, He'd be a terrible referee, though. You ooze someone who has a friend called Pete, actually, Dave, now I think about it. <laughs> Danny, yep. tell us about your, your next um, slight dislike of football. This one is more than slight, but uh, 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 I don't like the idea, the concept of confidence. Professional footballers, right. ex-professional footballers and pundits, they're always going on, there's Team X, they're doing no good, the player's got no confidence. There's Team Y, they're playing with tremendous confidence. What the living frig are we actually talking about here? What what the hell has confidence got to do with it? What they are are people who have been trained. And training, football training, um, in its original way of being done, um, with one person shouting at 15 or 16 people in Victorian times, comes straightforwardly and absolutely, and this is verifiably, out of the military. That's where the idea of training comes from. The idea of military training is that when the pressure comes on, which is either um, a bloke over there with uh, armed with a semi-automatic weapon firing over your head, or the crowd shouting you're about to take a, a corner, When the pressure comes on, you fall back on your training and do the things you have to do to survive or to excel automatically. It does not require confidence. It does not require you to go up and say, oh, I feel good about this now. Yeah, I can take this corner or I can avoid this bloke in the tank. Um, You don't need any of those things. You need to do what you've been trained to do. Now, footballers, I know they only train for about two hours a day, possibly a bit less at Spurs, if some of the things Les Ferdinand once told me are true. But when people say, oh, he's lost his confidence, what confidence do they need? Get out there. You are gifted. You have been trained since you're 11. You are highly remunerated and you have been trained. What confidence do you need? You need confidence if you're about to walk up to a new partner or prospective partner in a disco you might need to put on a bit of a show of confidence to say to maria or dave or like you i'd like to buy you a baby sham that's when you need confidence not when you're playing blinking football and it drives me mad okay well i'm i'm planning to dig into the concepts and the of confidence in in terms of football coverage but dave i need to address this point straight away football is to some extent a form of expression, an art form, as well as a as well as a physical undertaking. Confidence, therefore, must play a huge part in that. Well, if I was to fall back on my pathetically um, embarrassing amateur career, confidence does play a huge amount in what I end up doing on a on a on a football pitch. But I suppose to to fall into Danny's theory, I, that's because I largely because I haven't been trained. 
I haven't received any 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 football training or military style football training to fall back on. But, you know, without getting too earnest about it, they are still human beings, right? So they yeah. still could be affected by the ups and downs of one's mood. Welcome, welcome to <laughs> Danny, our tune. Danny, are you Danny? Are you not willing to embrace the concept um, uh, so beloved by football league goals roundup uh, narrators of being in the mood? Oh. You know, just being in the mood. Oh, and the zone. There's another excuse for not yeah, playing properly. True. There's some kind of uh, some kind of made up zone into which you have to enter, presumably because your confidence is high, in order to play a blinking game that you've been trained for ten, sometimes twenty years to excel at. Look. In order to not appear a madman, I will say, we all know there are days when we're doing what we do for a living, um, when you, you, you suspect, oh, I'm on fire here, I'm absolutely doing this. But it's not based on confidence, that's based on your experience and the people you're responding with, you know, if you get good callers, or the stories are great, or the match is great, and you can feel that you're doing the, the work which you're paid to do to a very high level. But... I don't, hopefully, and Dave knows more about this, he's produced me over the years, I don't fall below a certain level because I don't feel good about myself and that my radio broadcasting on one day compared to another. On an upward spiral, I do see how some days, um, we all do it, you know, you click your fingers and the hat is on the side of the head and you think, whoa, I'm really, I'm really doing this. And whether it's co- cooking a meal or uh, doing, you know, whatever you're at, I, I accept that there is um, a... a a biorhythm that allows you to be better than you normally would. But it's the thing of, of footballers falling back on, and it, and it really is ubiquitous with them, isn't it? I mean, you know, the football cliches. Players after a game will say, oh, we're a bit low on confidence. Well, I thought you were a bit low on skill, application, team spirit and effort there, if you want the actual truth, mate. Confidence didn't have anything to do with it. Well, interestingly, I mean, we've covered, we've started by talking about how confidence applies to actually playing it. But I'm, I'm more interested, Danny, in, in how confidence is kind of weaponized by observers, pundits, commentators. Because it's either, it's one of either two things, the problem here. It's either lazy journalism or it's kind of the, the understandable grasping at the intangibles by the layman. It's like someone who doesn't really understand football but wants to cr- try and get into the head of a footballer. Which do you think it is? Well, I wouldn't be so cruel to say it was laziness. Um, and Because I, right. I think you're right. There, there are One of the great joys and mysteries of everything that's, um, that's cultural rather than industrial is that there are so many intangibles. I made my living for the first half of my working life describing music. Um, I think I was pretty good at it. Um, other people might argue with that. But what I was perfectly aware of was that no matter how many words, expressions, thoughts, moods I bring to this piece of writing, it will never adequately describe. I can only describe the outskirts of the feelings you might get from this piece of music. And I think football commentators, um, even the, the great ones, do do have a problem in that, you know, if something is going very badly in a football match or something's going very, very well, it's clear to us, it's available to us with eyesight, and our brains look at it, and yet it's very, very often hard to dissect or untangle exactly what is going on. And so things like confidence, things like spirit, those sort of things tend to get, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the dreaded and even more overused, passion, um, Desire. desire. And I'm sure, I'm very sure mostly, you know, until they're getting rid of the manager, there comes time to get rid of the manager, doesn't it? And this is why I think it's so great that you support Watford, um, Dave, because 
Watford's players are the only ones who don't have to d- deliberately work to get a manager they don't like out because they know that the Pozzos will deal with that for them somewhere very, very soon. Whereas other clubs, you, decide, you don't like Jose Mourinho, you have to quote, and here we go again, down tools for a couple of weeks in order to get him out. And in so doing, you have to display no spirit. You have to divest yourself of all signs that you ever had any confidence. And that's what eventually causes the chairman um, to start repainting the name on the office door, isn't it? Truthfully. Dave, the other semi-indescribable intangible that one of our listeners hates, this is from Sam. He says, a player having X number of yards in his head. How that's measured is a mystery, but I've heard two, five and ten yards placed in people's heads. Um, Ten? You can't have ten yards in your head, can you? As as in an ageing player who, the legs are gone, but he's still, I think I heard, I think I actually heard Thiago Silva described in that exact uh, way on Saturday against, uh, who was it against? It was Chelsea against Leicester. And he had an amazing yeah. game. And yeah, he was very much described as... I can't, it was Glenn Hoddle. Glenn Hoddle was on ah, Cocoms. That explains it. And I can't remember the exact phrase he used. It wasn't, it wasn't yards in your head, but I think, it was, I think it was the brain will always be quicker than your legs. Danny, is there an upper limit for how many yards you should have in your well, head? Well, I think because... Uh, yes, I think there is. Uh, you, you, you take the ultimate yards in the head player, work out how many he had, and that becomes the internationally recognised outer limit. And of course... That person okay. Teddy, Teddy Sheringham, ah, Invent, invented yes. for, applicable to, and forever associated with the great Sir, Sir, Sir Edward Sheringham, um, as mm. Sir Brian Clough would have called him. But it was only every yard, right? It was never more than one and, yard. And maybe, I, I think possibly I've heard it uh, extended by hyperbolists to two yards. But when you're getting into the idea of 10 yards in your head, I mean, so, honestly, your head, would weigh, your head would, for a start would weigh two and a half tonnes. You'd never be able to get, never really get it around a football pitch. <laughs> So I think it should be called the Sheringham level. And whatever Ted had in his head, that will be the outer limits that we should allow before it becomes fantastical. I absolutely agree. Well put. And yeah, Sheringham very much the very much the benchmark for this. Oh, look at that! That is wonderful! Brought to your ears by The Athletic. This is Football Clichés. Right. We're on to your third and final entry into your hates of football. Did this this almost certainly qualifies by the looks yeah, of it? Yeah, listen, um, the previous five things, loves and hates, you could argue, have been lightweight, um, have been flotsam and jetsam, flim-flam, and possibly um, even pathetic. But this is true. This is a real hate. Um, I hate FIFA. I hate the FIFA World Cup, being called the FIFA World Cup. I hate FIFA law. And perhaps as a laser distillation of all those things, I hate the World Cup in Qatar. FIFA is a necessary evil. Somebody has to organise the game. Though, frankly, uh, having done this podcast for you two, I would now take their duties from them and let you two run it. You seem like perfectly decent blokes. And I think you could run FIFA quite happily. What we've had, I mean, first of all, the history of FIFA is very quick. It, it, It falls into two parts. There was the FIFA that was run by British people for the first hundred years of kind of um, football, Sir Stanley Rouse and all that lot, which has led to English football in particular being absolutely despised around the world and why we, we are never getting the World Cup. Trust me on that. Then it was taken over by other people to spread the game around the world and all the rest of it. And of course, the joy of corruption then starts in with all that. Sir Stanley Rouse was not corrupt, but he was a terrible and far too 
Eurocentric leader of FIFA. Since then, we've seen in the various waves of corruption. When FIFA decided that the World Cup, which is what I grew up with, had to be called the FIFA World Cup, I, I get it, it's for copyright reasons, but it isn't really, is it? It's for stamping their horrible brand of ownership on something that had been built up by generations of footballers and football fans around the world historically and saying, we own that now. And of course, the, the code, that's the code for we own the television rights, their only source of income. And the reason, of course, why Arsene Wenger, um, who I have previously admired, is going around saying that the, the World Cup would be better off if it was two, every two years, which just translates as that would double FIFA's income with a drop of a hat. So let's do it. Um, I hate the fact that South Africa was the worst case of this, wasn't it? Where a new, a newly reformed republic in many ways um, and a struggling country dealing with its history and its own democracy, um, they, they pile in there and lay down something called FIFA law, where local bylaws are overrun by the whims of a sporting association. Are you fucking joking me? Really? I'm fascinated by this. Tell us a little bit more. What does FIFA law consist of, mate? It's mainly about the mainly about money. It's right? about um, what money can and go in and out of the stadiums. It's about the security arrangements. It's about closing down um, roads so that the motorcades of their well-heeled mates can be ferried in and out of these events. Um, and in, 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 one, of the re one of the things you have to sign in order to become a World Cup venue is that FIFA law will, for those two, three or four weeks, um, as, you know, sublimate the local past bylaws. It is a, an arrogance that borders on insanity. And of course, that's the problem. Whenever you look at FIFA, UEFA's not much better. Let's be truthful about that as well. You look at it and you think, there's no other, tr the, the trans-global nature of their reach and their power is, is almost unmatched. I mean, the Olympic, the IOC used to be every bit as bad. Then it got pulled down, didn't it, where yeah. everybody, everybody went to jail. And um, instead of having four, five rings on their shirts, they had a little number with their name above it, didn't they, um, as they yeah. all went to prison and stuff. But it, it drives me absolutely mad, the idea of FIFA law and the the strutting self-regard of FIFA as an organisation, which brings us, sorry, to the voting for the last two World Cups. I was on air on TalkSport uh, the afternoon that the voting was done um, and Lord Coe was there and David Beckham was there. And we got, if you remember, one vote. Somebody accidentally voted for England to get the World Cup. Was it us? Oh, uh, Did we vote no, for you, ourselves? No, you're not allowed to vote for yourself. So I, somebody must have voted by accident for England, right? Um, hmm. And so the two countries that come up are Russia, you know, the ugly offspring of the, 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 the terrible thing that we talked about earlier, the Soviet Union, its empire, and Qatar, a nation whose suitability, uh, both climatically, politically, democratically, for being the host of a major global sporting event, are at the very, very outskirts of questionable, aren't they? Um, they're not, it's not suitable is the answer, as we saw with the, the temperature figures where they gave the average temperature, but that included nighttime. Um, and so we, we suddenly discovered that we would be playing um, the quarterfinals of the World Cup in a, essentially a pizza oven. They could have played the whole thing under floodlights, though. Um, well, they would. I worry, but they are also adding to the ambient temperature, aren't they? Those great big floodlights. <laughs> you wouldn't be getting pylons, that's for sure. You wouldn't be getting old-fashioned. I said on air, I don't believe a football will ever be kicked in Qatar, and 
And not for the first time, not for the last time, rather, I was completely wrong. Completely wrong. Um, wait, wait, they have forced this thing and forced this thing and forced this thing through. Change it to the winter. To hell with the football calendar in, in most of the rest of the world. And you even see in recent days, you know, the, 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 the Chinese tennis player who disappeared and then came back. The lengths to which the IOC still, those, those lads, and the good boys at FIFA, they will go to any lengths to ensure that these decisions are just, just made to happen. Um, I don't know the answer. I, I, I truthfully don't know the answer since I presume somebody has to organise the global game. But what I know is that an organisation self-possessed enough to invent the concept of FIFA law, that is not the one for me. But Danny, on the other hand... What? <laughs> Richard Keyes once said, Qatar is a lovely little country. It's a gorgeous place to live. So... You have to you have to weigh those things up. You do, you do. And so I'm asking you, Adam Hurry, I'm asking you to weigh my considered and erudite opinions against those equally considered, no doubt, and erudite of Richard Keyes. I leave it with you. I know which way he's going to go. Yeah. I shall yeah. subsequently <laughs> pass it on to our listeners to decide. Um, Danny, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you share your love. And a joy to be here. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, I, I, I enjoy I enjoyed the little niches that we went down. Um, floodlights. Floodlights felt like a bit of a tap-in to start with, but oh. we, we really got some mileage out of that. Football under communism was an unexpected turn, but I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that. Championship Manager 0102, which I which I, I was surprised was your starting point for Championship Manager. I, I, I thought you'd be a 93-94 No, the, the game is too simplistic there, isn't it? You, right. you, 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 mean yeah. you could literally um, tie a small plank to your forehead and just jab at the keys and the thing would work. <laughs> you'd you'd be third at least, wouldn't you? You'd be qualified for the Europa League easily. <laughs> Very good. Uh, recognisable referees was the first of your footballing. Well, we never got down um, to really just how much I seriously want them to wear the, the, the Daft Punk masks. And then somebody said to me, will they have a number on them? No, because then you start to say, oh, referee number four, he's good, isn't he? No, no recognition whatsoever. Although, Danny, that does seem a little bit like f- the sort of thing that FIFA could one day introduce, stormtroopers for referees. Do you, do you honestly think they have the imagination to do that? Come on. <laughs> then that's too much Star Wars. We've done Star Wars. It's like The Simpsons. Don't want it. You're not against Star Wars as well, are yeah, you? Yeah, I am. Oh, for God's sake! In 150 years of refereeing, the great breakthrough is a can of shaving foam on their hip. They ain't changing to Daft Punk mask anytime soon. Oh, and and I mean, aren't FIFA trying to sue the bloke? Give <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that or something to steal as well. the patent. <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah well exactly. <laughs> What a fantastic organisation yeah. they are. They are absolutely surreal yeah. and a parody of themselves. And that was your final hatred of football, FIFA itself. Mm. Danny, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you, Adam. Honestly, seriously, genuinely loved it. Thank you very much indeed. And Dave, good to see you and work with you again. Cheers, Dan. Cheers to you, Dave. Thank you. Have a lovely weekend, everyone. See you next time. Bye. The Athletic.